Today is February 20th, 2022, and this is episode 263 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me tonight, as always, is Mr. Andrew Kellett. Good evening, Jerry. How are you, sir? I am just amazing. How are you? I am so good it hurts. Good. Good to hear. Hope everybody's had a great couple weeks. Uh, last week was um, a little, little crazy. I had uh, family in town and that whole Super Bowl thing. Well, you know, I did watch some commercials. I didn't actually watch the Super Bowl, but there were some pretty good commercials. I, I've learned that if I'm not into crypto or the metaverse, I'm just not relevant to advertisers any longer. This is very true. I completely agree with that. <laughs> and there's a lot of uh, there's a, a lot of uh, focus on on EVs too, electric vehicles. That was the other. Uh, the other hotness. Which, uh, completely off topic, there's apparently a car carrier in the Atlantic on fire full of UVs. That's not good. Yeah. The, that's that's really not good. Yeah, the, the batteries are going to get yeah. uh, a wee bit combustible. Anyway. Anyway, on that happy yeah. thought. Yeah. Just a reminder that the thoughts and opinions we express on the show are ours and do not represent those of our employers. All right, so let's get into some stories. And the first one comes from govinfosecurity.com. And the title here is Data Breach Exposes Booking Details of 19 Million Customers. So the, uh, the, the victim here, or I guess depending on how you think about it, the victim or the perpetrator is flexbooker.com, who is a, a company that other organizations can subscribe to to uh, to manage their calendar. So basically allow uh, their end customers to schedule appointments like, you know, COVID testing, apparently pet euthanasia and, and um, all other, all manner of other things. And uh, interestingly, this is the second time in a month, apparently, or maybe just over a month that this organization had a problem back in December of 2021 they apparently had a breach of uh, just under 4 million records, 3.7 million, uh, that happened uh, simultaneous with a DDoS attack. They, there's really, uh, despite my best attempt to find it, I couldn't quite figure out the method of breach using the DDoS. But uh, you Yeah, know. I was also trying to figure that out. It's just written out that they DDoS so that they could exfiltrate this data somehow. And I'm like, how are these two things related exactly? And it's never quite clear. Yeah. So. It, so don't don't uh, fig, try to figure that out too much because I certainly wasn't able to uh, to make the equivalence. But but apparently um, it allegedly had to do with uh, S, an open S three bucket as this new issue did. So in this this new issue, a company called VPN Mentor, who is a online VPN recommend referral uh, website. Interesting 
<clears throat> to see these days who all has security research teams. I, I have to say that. Uh, they they were trawling the internet and found an open S3 bucket with 19 million records. And that this one also turned out to be owned by Flexbooker. And uh, it, it quite interestingly, uh, the it isn't it's kind of implied if you read the article and then you also go read VPN Mentor that uh, things didn't actually start to get fixed until VPN Mentor's research team went and talked to AWS directly because they were not getting a response out of Flexbooker, and it seems like maybe the company was thinking that they were that this VPN Mentor team was trying to report or trying to tell them about a breach that they thought had already happened. Yeah. It seemed like they initially replied with their canned response on the first breach, not realizing it was a new second breach. Correct. Yeah. Correct. So, you know, really highlights a couple of things. One is yeah, you know, you need to not assume (laughs) that you, you understand exactly what people are, are trying to report to you because I think, I think this contributed a bit to the black eye and for goodness sake, goodness sake, we really need people to understand how to secure S3. Like I, I it, it, there's look at this point in in the 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 evolution of cloud, we have VPN referral websites that are actively looking for misconfigured S3 buckets. That's kind of the place that we've gotten to in in uh, the IT world. So like it's hard. It's getting really hard to justify. I mean, do you think this is as a result of we've basically democratized and commoditized the idea of IT? And so we've got a lot of less than experienced people out there now spinning up IT infrastructure just I because s- they have a credit card and an account? I certainly think that's part of it. And actually it dovetails super well into the next story, which I will just jump into because I think it's certainly material. And it's this is from helpnetsecurity.com, and the title is Cloud Security Training is Pivotal as Demand for Cloud Services Explode. And you know, one of the points raised in throughout this article is what you know what was useful knowledge in IT security uh, in you know in um, traditional IT environments is still largely relevant, but there's another dimension of of, of knowledge that security people now need to also understand. And so it's not enough to have that, you know, the, the prior body of knowledge on how to, uh, on how to operate securely. We also need people to understand um, not just the general concepts of security and cloud, but also the specific implementation details of the cloud that you're using. And I think in particular, one of the reasons we keep seeing these issues with S3 bucket access is it's kind of nuanced. It's, it's, I, you know, I've played with S3 over the years and it's not hard to make mistakes. Like it's, you, 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 um, you have to know what you're doing, I guess is the way I'll say it. Yeah. Uh, you know, one thing that they mentioned here, I think it's in this article, it's one of the articles we talk about is th- there's a lot of good information out there now and benchmarks and and best practices that you can apply against these things. And there's a lot of tools out there too. So, you know, I think it behooves you to use something like they talk about the CIS benchmarks for cloud security as, you know, a good baseline to look at. And I 
you know, that makes a lot of sense. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. You just have to grab something like that and run through it and figure it out and what makes sense to you and what doesn't. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it, I, I really liked the point that the article does, does make that, you know, you, not only do we have to, again, not only do we have to have people who are fluent in, in cloud native con or, you know, cloud concepts and as it pertains to security, but you also really need to uh, provide training to your, your security team and probably even it team in the specific cloud provider that you're using because of there's a lot of nuance that may differ between cloud providers in terms of like shared responsibility um, model. Yeah. I mean, certainly it's a new skill set. It's a different skill set, but boy, it, you know, it seems like now we've had enough time to bake on this. We, we know the common problems, how we've been talking about, unsecured S3 buckets causing breaches for years and years and years and years now. Yeah. Yeah. Almost since the, back to the beginning of the show. Yeah. That's, I mean, there's, there's entire in, like there's an entire industry around just constantly trolling AWS and, and other cloud providers for unsecured storage buckets. Oh, I wonder, I mean, it's a, it could be controversial to say, but I wonder if, Perhaps AWS and GCP and others need to go to a default secured approach as opposed, as opposed to default open. That's certainly going to have a lot of impact and a lot of implications. So I, I don't know. I, I can tell you, uh, and I can speak. I can speak somewhat authoritatively on this on this topic. There, there's a lot of hesitation. I mean, from the perspective of a cloud provider you have to walk the line, right? Because if you create too much friction for, for new customers who are trying to come in and like, it is so, so hard to get your, you know, hello world app running that you just, you want to bail and go to some other cloud provider versus, you know, making things secure by default to the point where they're, you know, we're not going to be having this particular discussion. I don't know that, as a industry, the cloud providers have got that nailed. I, I you know, yeah. my, my, my intuition is that for the most part, cloud providers, AWS included, are really tending more towards the, um, you know, the lower friction for new customers. And they actually talk about this in the article about how by default, most of the administrator accounts that come, you know, come provisioned in your account are over permissioned. Well, this is the old, old, old debate, right? This is absolutely the debate. I mean, you could boil this back down to just passwords. And, you know, why are people's passwords accounts or accounts still being compromised with passwords? Uh, why is your banking account somebody guessing your password? It's not that we don't know how to secure those accounts with multi-factor or whatever, but forcing that on users causes a friction point, like you mentioned, that causes loss of business. Right. And that, I mean, that's that fundamental. Even our own enterprises, We've got to keep in mind if our security is too onerous, our users will go around it or they won't follow it. Correct. You know, it's that is the old debate that we have over and over and over again about usability, convenience, friction, security. Uh, so it's not that surprising to hear. Uh, and, you know, again, there, there comes a responsibility that you have to take on when you start building out things online or these things will happen. 
Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, from, and from, by the way, from the cloud provider's perspective, it's like we, you know, they give you all of the tools that you need. And most of them even provide training and books and and all the materials that you would need to understand how to properly secure your environments. But, you know, they, they, they do point out that for, for example, the, there's a little bit of a discussion about the Capital One breach and about how, you know, there's a, a, a particular um, protocol that AWS, you know, it, it, it's, it re- doesn't require authentication. And um, they, but they have a alternative that does support authentication, but they don't recommend you turn off the one that, that requires that authentication off. So um, it's a, it's a, you know, right now, I think the cloud providers are getting a lot of traction and being able to say, like, you know, caveat emptor, it, this is, you know, right. we we tell the customers what they need to do. If they don't do it, that's on them. But there is a threshold, I think, and, and I suspect that we're, like, in, in the period of the inflection point where um, it becomes a drag on the on the providers, too, right? The f- just by virtue of um, you know people starting to question whether AWS is doing enough or not. Yeah, they and, don't want to be perceived as insecure. Right. Yeah. And you know if if you have customer accounts being taken over en masse, you know like m- maybe it's not dam- necessarily damaging your business directly, but it might be tying up a whole lot of your customer support staff. Right. Just simply trying to you know help customers through um, you know, their, their problems. So anyway, I, I think, I think this is, you're going to over time have to self level where, you know, as an industry, the providers are going to have to, um, you know, do, do have a higher baseline default set of a level of security. Um, just, just as a, like a survival means. I mean, do you think that there's a middle ground here where they could do like a free audit with recommendations on a regular basis to be like, Hey, you've got this open S3 bucket. Are you sure you want that? I think it's a good idea. Um, you know, obviously, with in in the cloud, all things are are um, driven by scale, and so it would have to be something high, you know, highly automated and not necessarily tailored. But yeah, right. I think it's not a bad idea. I don't know. Obviously, I'm not in that business, but it's easy for me to say that for free. Yeah, no, well, I think I think um, I mean candidly, I think most of the providers actually do give you some ability to do that with with the various. I forget forget what um, the the name of the tools that AWS and Azure and, and the others provide, but you know, a lot of them are actually already do provide well, they have tools. The it's just usually at a cost. True. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, well, I mean, <laughs> it's of course it's a cloud, like. Right. No, I get it. I, nothing against it. I'm just, I'm, I'm thinking from a PR standpoint, like if it gets really bad, that could be an option they could take of like proactively alerting their customers so they can be easily stand behind the perception that they're not at fault. Yeah. You know, the other thing that makes me, it, it, now that you say that, I have a feeling that cloud providers are going to want to get ahead of that because, you know, if they don't, Regulators, I mean, right, there's just a ton of what I'll loosely call regulatory innovation going on <laughs> in the in the cybersecurity world right now. And I have a strong feeling that most cloud providers are, are not 
you know, super eager to have, uh, you know, government bureaucrats coming in and, and prescribing what they should be doing for free for customers. And so, right. you know, it's, there's probably some impetus for, for cloud providers to do more uh, anyway. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. anyway, uh, moving on to the next story. This one comes from bankinfosecurity.com and the title is Massive Breach Hits 500 E-Commerce Sites. Um, these sound like relatively small um, e-commerce stores, so I'm not sure the massive moniker was appropriate, but there it is. Uh, these This attack affected uh, Magento, a not, not just any Magento, a 12-year-old version of Magento that apparently is still in popular use despite having like a decade's worth of vulnerabilities. If your app is almost old enough to drink in Europe, you've got a problem. <laughs> That's true. That's true. It's uh, you know, it's, it's, they're, they're about to uh, enter high school here in the U S what's amazing is that it's 12 years old, but it only stopped being supported in the middle of 2020. Yes. So 10 years of support by Adobe is pretty healthy. That's not too shabby for sure. Yeah. Hmm. Anyway, carry on. Uh, but anyway, there's a, uh, there's a fairly, apparently fairly well-known attack that um, yeah, from, from reading the article here is typically abused in such a way as to add administrator accounts to these Magento shops. But in this particular case, they actually used it to modify the footer code for the um, you know, for the, the easy commerce shops to include a, a JavaScript file from that was hosted on another compromised uh, website which called nature naturalfreshmall.com sounds totally legit and uh, and that loaded in the um, you know the, the credit card scraper so which basic I mean, stuff. It's pretty impressive. I, I have trouble changing the footer on my Word documents to update the, you know, the year. <laughs> yeah, they, 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 are, uh, they are clever bastards. I will, uh, just, I will grant you that. This is like next level footer enhancement. Yeah, I mean, we, like, I, I do have a hard time with CSS still, and, and they've, uh, they've managed to, to tailor it to steal credit cards. So, so yeah, good, good, uh, good lesson on, keeping your e-commerce software up to date. Um, well, you know, when I first, when I first read this, I, um, I actually thought it was as a result of a common hosting provider. And we've seen this in the past where like the, you know, you have hundreds of different, um, different storefronts hosted by the same provider and, you know, that hosting company gets compromised and all of the, all, all of the the tenants, so to speak, on that service end up being compromised, and you see you know, creative uh, security firms talk about like how they uncovered this massive breach that that affected thousands of stores, but it was really just you know one server. But this actually does appear to be uh, five hundred distinct unrelated sites. So pretty uh, pretty broad attack. Well, I mean, once you find a very effective attack technique if you can scan for that vulnerability and mass attack it with a script yes can be can be pretty powerful yes yes absolutely 
So, I mean, the attack itself is pretty interesting. It's worth reading the uh, the post to get into the details of the attack about how they, you know, kind of injected some code, then got the code to to create some stuff and forced the code to run when people viewed the page. And it's pretty clever, I thought. Yeah, it was the, the, the particular vulnerability doesn't allow you, doesn't allow the adversary to run the code directly, but it did allow them to stuff some some things into a database that the adversary knows gets deserialized when the you know when somebody goes and visits the new logon page. So they were they were actually you know pretty clever in using um, you know some kind of a multi stage attack that relied on some of the normal behavior of of the site, and and that's what ultimately allowed them to uh, you know to, to incorporate the malicious code. So interesting stuff. You know, really, it it does highlight the importance of. Um, I, I, let me take take a step back. I will bet, I will bet, lunch, that all these five hundred sites didn't have somebody responsible, or or if they did, that person had left, responsible for maintaining um, Magento. Look, if it works, don't touch it. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's exactly. Somebody probably, they set it up a long time ago. The, their IT person left and, um, and they've been afraid to touch it. I don't have any reason, like, I, I have no insight into this other than to say I can see how that would likely happen. And I'm going to bet that's exactly what happened. It, you know, it, it just worked. Don't touch it. I did like that one of the researchers found one of the hosts had 19 different backdoors yes. on the system. Yes. 19. Not 18, not 20. Wait, like, how do you, I don't know. How do you decide 19 is the appropriate amount is what I want to know. In this case, the researchers found that the attacker had left no less than 19 backdoors on the system. I will say, you know, in, in um, without discussing details in the past and in, in my distant past, I had an, uncovered many systems that um, were compromised by multiple different adversaries. And in fact, you know, if you leave an unsecured system on the internet for any material, you know, any, any period of time, you, you can actually watch like a King of the Hill uh, oh, thing yeah. play out, right? <laughs> Where you'll see multiple people, or multiple adversaries coming in, compromising it, trying to kick out the other the other adversaries, and um, and sometimes by, by the way, actually applying patches, right to keep. <laughs> so right. it's it's um. They're not hackers. They're undocumented admins. In some instances, it was a little comical. Um, if it were, if it weren't sad. <laughs> uh, that log4j thing got patched. Good news. Bad news. It was by a criminal gang out of Europe to keep other bad guys out. But hey, it's patched. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It's kind of like encrypting your backups. Right? It's, it's important to do, but you know, maybe you want to be the one to do it, not not the ransomware. Well, you know. Look, it's encryption as a service, just unrequested. Right. Okay, the next story comes from Dark Reading, and the title here is Linux Malware on the Rise. So um, no surprise for anybody who's been involved in security for any significant period of time. Windows is has is and has been the primary focus for malware over, over the years. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, 
you know, it's typically the plat the, the end user platform of choice. Um, it is often federated into an Active Directory, which is you know still remains my favorite thing in the whole world. And you know, it it enables um, attacks that are, are are maybe more difficult on other platforms or just. Other platforms don't have the you know the um, the prevalence to make them worthwhile, but the article here points out that you know the cloud is starting to change that. Most cloud workloads these days, in some way, shape, or form, run on Linux, and so the point of this article is um, you know based on uh, research done by different research teams, including VMware, which I I presume means carbon black um, because that's I think um, I, I think carbon black is still under the VMware banner if I'm not mistaken I think so last I heard um, you know that, that there is a significant uptick in malware uh, that, that is intended to target Linux including by the way a version of uh, cobalt strike which has been tailored or ported from uh, from Windows over to Linux, and they talk about how in in some instances there was uh, some some threat actors have actually uh, reverse engineered the Cobalt Strike protocol so that they can uh, they can leverage it to uh, ro- remotely administer I guess a fleet of compromised Linux systems. So pretty interesting stuff, you know from a from personal experience, I have certainly encountered more than my fair share of compromised Linux systems, but I will say it's not been incredibly common to actually see malware proper. I mean, what I, what, what I usually see is, you know, backdoors or web shells or, um, you know, backdoors as it pertains to like uh, unauthorized accounts and, you know, that sort of thing. I haven't actually seen a ton of malware um, but I've all, you know, I've long thought that's probably not going to stay the case for very long, uh, particularly as Linux becomes more and more prevalent in, you know, in the IT world. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I think this is a good wake-up call that some folks may not realize how much Linux, especially cloud-based Linux images are starting to get on the radar of these of these bad guys. Uh, I This is pure conjecture that will probably get me laughed out of here, but I also wonder if this could eventually port over towards attacking Macs, which are based on Linux. Now, very different infrastructure, very different operating system, very different controls around it, but I still feel like there's this mm, false sense of security when with Mac folks who think that they're you know fairly attack-free. But I think if we see more... Research and development, as it were, being spent on attacking various Linux hosts. Who knows what might surface over on the Mac side? Yeah, I, I, I definitely, you know, it, I, I'll call Mac, Mac Unix-like. I mean, it's close, close enough. Um, yeah. And, and by the way, you know, you, even with, um, even with Windows, we're seeing Microsoft, you know, heavily embrace Linux with its, you know, um, WSL Windows services for Linux. And whatnot, which, by the way, you kind of creates um, potentially new uh, horizons for multi-platform malware. I, I've actually been um, one of the 
one of the frust- personal frustrations I've had in, in the Linux world is um, security agents running mm-hmm. on Linux is a giant pain in the ass. And, yeah. and the reason is because a lot of times you're put into this position of, well, do I patch the kernel? Or do I keep my security agent running? <laughs> and right. and there's, so there's always this, uh, often this contention between the two. And the good news is that um, there is, there is uh, you know, a solution on the horizon in the form of the eBPF, the it, in, Enhanced Ber- Berkeley Packet Filter, I think is what it's called. And it provides, you know, a kind of a kernel independent way instead of having to load a kernel module, which is what causes these compatibility issues, it, um, it gives a, a bit of a, uh, an independent way for security tools like antivirus, EDR agents and DLP and other, th- other things, you know, uh, visibility type, uh, agents to snap into a system without needing to load kernel modules. And therefore you should see, shouldn't see some of the, the stability and, and, um, you know, kernel version dependency that we, we currently see. But it also occurs to me that, you know, now Microsoft, by the way, is starting to embrace the same eBPF. And I would assume at some point, you know, uh, Apple may also follow suit. That is, you know, in uh, my view, I was trying to think about things of like, how can these be abused? Probably creates an opportunity for, um, very effective cross-platform low-level malware, Mm -hmm. which is a little scary. Well, you know, interestingly, we're talking about agents running on some of these cloud assets, for lack of a better term. I have seen some recent press from GCP, and I think AWS does some similar stuff, of agentless detections of malware based on behavior of a host. CPU spiking, memory utilization, things that indicate through other instrumentation uh, and analytics, likely behavior of things like crypto mining and ransomware and that sort of thing, which, you know, it's clever and it's, you know, it avoids some of those agent issues, uh, but certainly it's limited in its scope. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it, by the way, when, a, when, you know, when a host is compromised in a cloud with crypto miner, it's, it is typically pretty obvious to the cloud provider when, when that happens. And, uh, and so it's good to see that we're, you know, that, that providers are starting to do that because in, in some instances, you know, the tenants can get hit with a pretty big bill for services that they, that they weren't expecting. And, and um, you know, by the way, and I've, I've said this for a while now, like crypto mining in a compromised cloud account is like the best thing you could ever hope for as a victim <laughs> because like it's somewhat benign and um and it's easy to recognize that it's that it's happening uh and and many other you know, I, I think over time we're going to see adversaries starting to do much more nefarious things when they're able to take over cloud accounts like you know stealing stealing data you know encrypting entire s3 buckets and and you know like i think there's a category of adversarial attacks that we haven't really started to see yet Mm-hmm. using cloud at the same time i think that things like ebpf by the way also provide a um kind of an untapped capability for cloud providers to interface and look across 
you know the the uh, organization's fleet and and be able to um to provide a level of insight and visibility that you you have difficulty doing you know when you when you're just looking at things on an agent by agent basis so yeah i am um, there will be no end of exciting security stuff to worry about for many years. No, no, no. So long after we burn out and go do orchid farming, these issues will still be here. Exactly right. All right. The, uh, the last story for, for today also comes from dark reading and the title here is Google cuts user account compromises in half with a simple change. I think you mean this one simple change that will blow your mind. <laughs> <laughs> doctors don't want you to know about. <laughs> so, um, so, so Google, uh, to their credit, has started uh, force turning on two-step verification for a lot of their uh, their end users. So they've they've uh, turned it, turned it on for 150 million users, and their view is this cuts the uh, the risk of account takeover by half. Now there's a, there's some kind of tortured discussion about what that actually means, because they they talk uh, they interview Microsoft. I think I think the Microsoft interview was much more interesting. To be perfectly candid, uh, Microsoft's uh, spokesman or spokesperson says that there's a ninety nine they from their experience there's a ninety nine point nine percent reduction in account compromises when multi-factor authentication is turned on. And this is, you know, again, from their experience in Azure. But then they go on to say that in in the context of Azure, only, I think it was 22% of their customers are using uh, multi-factor authentication, which is kind of alarming. Yeah. Um, I, I tend to agree with them, however, we're seeing more and more evolution of multi-factor attack techniques that are being successful, primarily through social engineering, uh, that we're seeing start to proliferate in reaction, I think, to this being pushed out by some of these providers. So, as always, it's a little bit of a cat and mouse game. Yeah, I, I certainly agree with that. But I, I mean, right now, I think we're making it super, super easy to take over accounts. And and you're absolutely right. Like. Um, I think in the in the case of Google, they they talk about um, I think SMS is a one of their their options. And you know we all we know that SMS is a you know a, a, at this point a relatively easily defeated second factor. Um, but yeah, but, but it's it but but it is work. yeah that's the thing right. It's like right now the 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 adversaries can at scale compromise accounts like in en masse right by by doing passwords running password stuffing attacks using you know botnet armies and vpn providers and on and on and on uh, but if you know if, if you have even if you have a crappy two factor authentication it uh, my experience at least is it removes that scale factor like you can still for any given account it's still relatively straightforward to compromise, but it's it becomes much more difficult to do. And you know, look, my I'm quickly getting as as we talked about earlier in the show. I'm quickly getting to the point now 
where I think it's becoming really irresponsible for uh, online service providers of really any kind, not to just by default have two-factor. Maybe you still let people turn it off yeah. if, they, if they're feeling lucky, right? But by default, it's on. And yeah, it, you're not wrong. I, I agree completely. And I think like, yeah, we know that SMS is attackable, but I feel like we get too hung up on the art of the possible instead of, okay, can we at least inc- make some incremental improvements? Yeah. We're letting it. the perfect become the enemy of the good enough, as, as yeah. the saying goes, right? Yeah, and, and I, I, you know, if it really matters, don't use SMS. But at least turning on SMS makes it just that much harder for the bad guys. Yeah, they can get around it, but if if you've got bars on your windows and your next-door neighbor doesn't, and the guy's just looking to smash and grab, maybe he's going to go next door. Yeah. Yep. And, and, you know, once once we have this as a as a kind of a de facto stance, then we can look at better ways to do it. You know, Google and Microsoft and, and others have the concept of, you know, using devices so like a pop-up, not a, not necessarily a text, but you know, a pop-up on, on your phone or, or whatever mm-hmm. to, to approve it. And, and by the way, like there's even ways around that, 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 you know, that the adversaries are, are starting to figure out, but again, it still takes away that scale factor. Right. And, and so, you know, I think I think this is an area uh, that we will see a lot of um, evolution in terms of uh, the technology and and attack techniques and whatnot. But um, but but like you said, like we we can't just you know act defeatist about it and say uh, like we can't make it perfect and therefore let's just not even try. I'm I'm I, I really think we need to be more aggressive here. Yeah, I agree. All right. Well, it's uh, great to talk to everybody again. I certainly appreciate your time. Hopefully this was useful to you. Yeah, absolutely, guys. Thanks, as always, for coming and joining us. We're trying to get back on track to record more often. So hopefully you guys are still out there with us. Yeah, I think we're now up to uh, more shows in 2022 than we did in the last two years. So that's pretty good. Nice. Unlike everybody else, Jerry got busier during the plague times. Oh, my gosh, I sure did. I sure did. I think other I think other people did too, but um it has been a um uh, an exciting time in my life. I will I'll look, I guess I'll say it that way. Mm-hmm. May so, you live in interesting times. That I do. That I do. All right, everybody. Thank you for everything. Um you can follow Mr. Kellett on Twitter at Lurg. It's L-E-R-G. You can follow me on Twitter at malicious link. And uh, you can follow Find other episodes, back episodes on our website at www.defensivesecurity.org. There's a link there to our Patreon um, you know, hat if you want to drop some uh, money in to help support the show. And uh, with that, we will talk again soon. Thanks, everybody. Have a great week. Bye-bye. Yeah.